Hello, hello, Braveful listeners. Thank you so much for being here today. This week's podcast is um, is an honor for me to present to you. It is with Anne-Marie Thompson. She's the co-founder of Giving Back to Africa, which is now um, going into Malembe Rise. I think uh, the pandemic has taught us that we need to be looking at things differently. And Anne-Marie realized that Giving back to Africa, even though it was started in you know 2007, needed to morph into the age of 2000 and, or 2021. And so, um, you know, with her humbleness, her gratefulness, and her love, um, she's here today to talk about now Malembe Rise. And I guess my question for you is: Have you ever thought of starting? your own 501c3, an NGO working on a different continent in a different country with a totally different culture. That's what Anne-Marie did and with the support of others, including her her husband, Jim. You know, so I guess listen and learn and lean into everything that Anne-Marie has to say. Malembe Rise exists out of love and it's ever so present in this conversation and her her drive for creating justice for everyone, her drive for equality in education, her drive for the underrepresented is just, it's electric, it is contagious. So if you have been caught the bug of Malembe Rise after listening to this great conversation with Anne-Marie, I invite you to go to malembe-rise.org, look around, educate yourself, and if your heart is open to it, um, please feel free to give. Um, during this time, Malembe Rise, like all other 501c3s, could really use um, some love. Um, so yeah, so thank you for joining. It's, it's another long one, I apologize, but it's a really, really good one. Have a great day. Matter of fact, have the best day ever. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Braveful, a podcast with and for achieving women. I'm your host, Amy Zeigert. I'm so excited to share with you stories of women who are brave and gutsy. This show is a weekly view into the hearts and minds of what has enabled these fabulous ladies to take a leap and go forward with bold ideas. So join me in an opportunity to listen, learn, and lean in Braveful style. Thank you very much for for doing this. I, I I mean, and I should probably disclose, just like I did with when I talked to to Sarah, is that I sit on the board of what is now Malembe Rise and used to be Giving Back to Africa, which is what you um, co co founded, co started, however you want to put that. So that way, people know that um, one, I'm doing it because I think what you started however many years ago is is vital to our our global world today because we are all one citizen of this big world and i think second of all um you truly started giving back to africa out of out of love and i and and i think that the power of what love can do um is really at the forefront of what Malembe Rise um, represents. Um, so I guess with that said, um, tell us about your background and how you came to 
love the Congo, Africa. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, I'm really happy to share anything I can about this remarkable country, which is right in the center of Africa, of the continent. It is, in fact, the heart of Africa and also probably one of the richest pieces of real estate on the planet, according to National Geographic. Um, this is a powerful country. It has great potential. I was born and raised in the Congo. So there are two Congos. There's the Democratic Republic of Congo, which um, was a Belgian colony. And then there is the Republic of Congo, which is a much smaller country um, that was a French colony. Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is where I was born and raised, is the second largest country in on the continent. So my parents were missionaries, and I'm very quick to always point out that they weren't Barbara Kingsolver Poisonwood Bible missionaries. Um, dad was more, well. Dad was more of a of an anthropologist. Um, he was an educator, and my mother was a nurse. So. I, I was born in 1954, so that was still under the Belgian regime. My parents lived in, worked in the Congo for 40 years, and I, I can't remember ever once feeling frightened or, or afraid, even though we went through two evacuations when there was a fair amount of discontent and violence um, in 1960 when Congo got its uh, independence from Belgium. And then again in 64 when there was a great anti-white feeling for good reasons. So it, my upbringing was, was just absolutely wonderful. I was, you know, I, we grew up with no electricity or running water. I studied by candlelight and kerosene lamp. I never, ever felt that I was in want. I think the thing that is the most powerful memory for me is, is the closeness, the closeness to nature. The natural world is so much a part of Congolese life. In fact, homes are only for sleeping. The rest, you know, the rest of the time is spent outdoors. So they it's it's wonderful because you wake up in the morning and you hear people sweeping outside their doors and they're basically sweeping their their front lawn, uh, which is usually dirt, and that's their li their living room. And you spend almost all your time outdoors. So I grew up uh, right on the edge of the rainforest. Uh, of course, Congo is um, the second largest rainforest on the continent. The Congo River Basin. It's, it's second to only to the Amazon. And the Congo River is the second largest river in terms of volume, second, again, only to the Amazon. So it was um, a rich, powerful, natural experience for me um, that has always driven my senses about the world around me. Yeah, so um, it's interesting, though, that I was uh, born and raised in a colonial environment. So while my parents were doing their humanitarian work, I was being raised by Congolese, uh, both men and women. And so I had a lot of moms and dads, Congolese moms and dads. And in many ways, I remembered them even more than my own parents because they were with me all the time while mom and dad were so busy with their work. 
so I always felt a tremendous desire to give back to Congo. There was nothing that I that I could ever think about how to give back. It was really important to me. I am I need to be really clear about this that the colonial legacy and missionaries were part of that even though I wasn't quite aware of it at the time. The colonial legacy left a a huge impact on my life. So I saw many, many different ways of international development work from the the kind of missionary model, which is, you know, living and working and dying and raising children and being in one place for 40 years as mom and dad were. And then I saw the big, you know, World Bank model that basically put hundreds of millions of dollars into a project, generally five-year projects, five to 10-year projects um, that often were never, that often, perhaps almost all the time, were not sustainable. So I had this, these many models in my head of how you live and work cross-culturally. And I was, it took me many years, actually, till I was in my 50s before I got the courage to even think about a way to give back to Congo what Congo gave to me because I was so afraid of doing more harm than good because much of Western intervention, um, sadly, does create more harm than good. And that always has been uh, troubling to me. And I've always tried so hard to understand why that is. But that is why I was so driven that anything I would do would try very, very hard to be partner a partnership rather than coming to help, which I, I find very racist and colonial. And even yeah. though it is so comes from the heart, um, it, it ends up being a, having an impact that is not, not positive or even helpful. So it, it, was, it's a, it was a very serious, you know, issue for me to even step out. <laughs> yeah. So I could, you know, interrupt me if you want. No. Oh my gosh. No, I, I just, I, so, you know, when I think of what you just said, doing, create more of a partnership versus doing more harm than good. I, I guess that comes back to that whole white saviorism piece that, you know, we talk about, but yet we don't talk about. And I, and I know that because you have experienced it, I think your view really casts the the real light of of what the problem is because you've been there you've lived there you grew up there um so so when you look at what Melembe Rise is doing what do you think is the problem you're solving so that's a really good question and first of all i don't think we're solving any problem i think that that comes out of a out of a perspective that is really dominant in the Western privileged world, that we have the capacity to solve problems. And in fact, I think one of the one of the things I've learned over time and through many mistakes is that there are certain issues that demand a kind of expertise. Um, they're technical issues like how do you build a well or that demand a, a Western expertise if 
building a well has never been done before. Of course, wells have always been built for years, for centuries in Africa. But there are other technical problems that can be solved with technical expertise. And often that expertise does come from the West. The challenge is that what is assumed is that um, you solve the technical problem and then everything, uh, then you expect, so you, you come in with expertise. Um, there's a term for, what are, what are they called? The, the parachute philanthropists mm. who, who come in with their expertise and then they leave. And, you know, if I'm a Congolese mother uh, and I have for, sent for many, many years seen experts, whites coming in um, and solving what, they have said is a problem or and what I might have said is a problem and then expect me to then continue with uh, to support whatever that solution was is just um, absurd and if I were a Congolese mother I would just say well you know I really appreciate you coming but you know if I don't know why why should I keep this going if you're (laughs) you know if you're the one that came in and did it and I never learned how to support this. And part of the problem is that many of the technical expertise comes from, you know, uses materials that are not even local. So it's impossible to get parts to fix things, right? So that's why we have all these um, UFOs all over, scattered all over Congo and UFO as in unfinished objects, you know, these, these amazing, you know, wonderful, heartfelt desires to to help end up becoming simply littering the landscape. So Malende Rice, on the other hand, you know, the key for me, the thing that was so critical for me was that we find a different way to think, first of all, think about what we're doing, that we go slow and easy, and that we admit to ourselves always that we are not there to solve problems. First of all, we all have problems, right? We're all human beings and we're all part of a greater whole. And so it, you know, but the dynamic is so, so insidious and and powerful when you have white privilege and what appears to those who are privileged to be poor people who are, who lack, and and they do lack, and Congolese, you know, they're some of the poorest people on earth from an economic perspective, from a financial perspective, from a health perspective. But to even begin to think that, that we can come in and help, the question is, how can we walk with our friends in Congo to address issues that are you know, intergenerational. So the work of Malembe Rise is is social justice work. It's it, education is economic social justice work, and it justice work demands a very different way of looking at the world. And what I have come to what I've come to believe is that when you when you are called to trying to honestly wrestle with the injustices across all of our societies, then the real issue is faithfulness. Now, effectiveness is important. We have to, 
yes, admittedly, we have to consider the impact of, of what we do through education in the Congo, because a lot of harm can be done also. But we have to really be humble and understand that education is a long-term process. We may never see the results of our work. In we we can count the number of students that we've helped, we can or that we've invested in, you know, right. we can, but any teacher knows that you're not there, you're there to be effective, but the only way to be effective is to admit and humbly walk with and faithfully stick with the work. And I observed that in my in my mom and dad. You know, they they were faithfully walking as best they could with the Congolese with whom they lived and worked. When did you figure out that you had to do it differently? What was kind of the sign that, you I mean, that I, I love your UFO, unfinished objects. <laughs> yeah, let that light bulb go off that just said, enough with the UFOs, we've got to change this. Yeah, that, you know, it it's been a long, long process of mystery and trying, really wrestling with very hard questions, both personally and cross-culturally. As I said, I did grow up in a colonial environment, and colonialism is just another form of racism. And, you know, it never, well, I'll tell you a story. So my father let my mom and dad retired in 19 in, in 1973 and then it was in 1997 i'm sorry my i left congo in 1973 my parents um, retired in 1990 and shortly thereafter congo went through a, a just just a horrible civil war the greatest loss of life since world war ii it was you know it was in the news but a lot of people really didn't follow it after that, and much of the fighting happened up in the area where I was born and raised and where mom and dad worked. So my mom died of a disease that she contracted in the Congo. Um, so mom, mom died, but dad wanted to go back to Congo one last time in, when he was 80 to, to say goodbye. And so I was certain that dad would go back to Congo thinking he would leave with us uh, thinking his whole life's work had gone down the drain. Because when we did go back to where I grew up at Karawa, everything was gone. Everything. The fighting had, you know, everything was looted. All the buildings, all the technical things were gone. They were destroyed. And I thought, you know, the schools where my dad taught were, were destroyed. And I thought, dad's going to just feel like, what, what was, you know, why did I even do this? But in fact, what happened was that from morning till night, people were coming to see my dad. I mean, they were walking, you know, miles and miles. I mean, we're talking 100 kilometers just to come and see dad and to thank him. And what I realized from that moment was that what was the most sustainable thing? What can outlast in what can outlast violence and horror and even degradation? What can outlast that? And I realized that dad's legacy was, was in education, that 
you know, people were thanking him that they could read, thanking him for showing them, you know, how or working with them on how to create electrical current, for example, something so simple as that. And dad, you know, what ha- what I realized was it was relationships. That's what outlasts everything else. People to people working together on a common goal. And the more diverse, the better. The more, the, the different ways that we work together can lead to a kind of innovation that I had not imagined before. And so I saw in my father when he left a tremendous sense of, okay, well done. Yeah, you made a lot of mistakes. Yes, you were a colonialist. Yes, you you were part of these horrors. But you you came away realizing, and I think dad himself surprised himself, oh yeah, that's what was important. My relationship with Kamu, my relationship with Mopepe, my relationship with Dawena, you know, those were the things that lasted. Those, and so that had an impact on me because I began to realize that if, you know, the principle of first do no harm has always been an important principle for me. And then I began to realize that if you carry that principle to its logical conclusion, you will never do anything because every intervention is going to have negative and positive unexpected consequences. And so if you want to contribute at all positively to society, you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing. You have to be really, really humble. Humility is is probably the most important quality necessary for any kind of cross cultural work. Yeah. So that yeah. that moment was when when I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll take the jump <laughs> and see what can happen." And, you know, since then, I've, I've learned a great deal about how slow and methodical and careful one must be working cross-culturally and how important it is for genuine sustainability. It's so important to be able to walk in another's shoes, to have an imagination and a creativity that allows you to to not only walk in another's shoes, but but to commit to walking with people who are different than you and, and people who have something to offer you that you that you yourself wasn't at first aware of. So I, I've learned more from our Congolese colleagues, and it's always been that way actually, you know, even growing up. Kamu was was just my my father who my second father who just taught me so much about life. So the you know and I hope that board members can go to Congo someday because all you have to do is just be in a classroom with Congolese children and you're just blown away by the potential there. I mean, amazing potential. So so when you started. What was your mission? What did you want to accomplish? And this was back in what, 2000? Yeah, 2007. Yeah. Well, first of all, we didn't, we didn't even consider trying to do anything 
until we re-educated ourselves because Congo in 1973, when I left, and Congo when we started GBA is, was a very different place. So we actually, Jim and I actually went to Congo four times, actually, and conducted focus groups and interviews, both up where I grew up, but also in Kinshasa. We met with a lot of leaders asking questions, just just educating ourselves. And the, the primary theme that came out of all of that focus group um, and interview experience was the importance of leadership and leadership that involved a kind of commitment to the larger whole. Okay. And so given my academic experience, that's where I've spent most of my life in the academy teaching. I have done a lot of service learning courses and with undergrads and, and master's level students. So we started our first project. And so we wanted to be, that's the other thing is that I really believe that cross-cultural work has to be experimental. You have to go into it willing to adapt. If you cannot adapt on a dime, if you cannot be flexible, if you cannot see everything as having an hypothesis, having an hypothesis and having an idea in your head and then testing it, together with Congolese, seeing how it works. Because Western models, I mean, rhetorically, we say, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take other people's uh, Congolese ideas into account. But to actually live it step by step is very different than saying it. Um, right. And so we started a project at the Protestant University of Congo to invest in upper level students in a court in a in a certificate program. So we paid for their for four students who had to meet a certain criteria that we set up. We paid for them to go to to finish their degree at the university. And while taking their courses, they would also take courses about asset-based community development, which is a particular model of development that says you don't look at needs, needs-based assessments only set up the cycle of experts coming in to solve problems. Asset-based community development is all about first look at the assets that are already around you and then ask the question, how do we leverage the assets that are already here to contribute positively to our society? So we had, I taught courses online through Skype, um, and, and we had other help at the university. That was a three-year project. It was experimental. At the end of that project, when the students all graduated, the four, actually one died, sadly enough, but the other three graduated, high distinction. But we then took one year to reassess what that project taught us, we did exit interviews with all of the, with the three scholars and the university as well. And we came to believe, actually we're convinced that leadership starts at the primary school level, not at the university level. And it's more complex than that, but that is when we decided to move to Collège des Savoirs, which is this small school about 25 kilometers outside of Kinshasa in a peri-urban slum that used to be a refugee camp. 
back in the 60s. And so we've been working at Collège de Savoir now for since 2011. Yeah. How many kids do you think Malembe Rise has actually affected? Wow. Well, it's interesting because in this particular environment, and, and we, we actually, the originally the board at that time had a long discussion about, okay, if we're going to go to primary education and leave the university, do we go to the best school mm. in Congo or do we go to the poorest schools in Congo? Of course, the vast majority of schools are like schools in the Pasa de area where we work. And there was a lot of conversation about that because, you know, would we be more effective if we worked at the best schools? Right. Um, that was a question. So it was not an inconsequential debate uh, that occurred over several weeks, actually. And then we finally decided to move to Collège des Savoirs. So that is to say that in an environment like the Pasa neighborhood, parents, children are coming and going constantly in and out of schools. You know, if parents can't pay the school fees, then the, the kids can't go to school. So oftentimes what parents will do is enroll their student, their kids in one school. Then when they have to pay the fees, they take them out and enroll them in a different school. So the reason I'm mentioning that is because it has been very hard to actually follow a cohort of students over time as they matriculate up to actually say, be able to document, you know, from a research perspective, specific changes in behavior and attitudes in the same students over time. In fact, I, I would say that of the children, you know, how many children have are familiar with giving back to Africa and know the work that we have done there in the education area? They, I would say, are well over 500, 700 kids. I mean, a lot of kids over time. But of those kids, probably, and I have the numbers somewhere, no more than 10 have we been able to follow step-by-step step and seeing, seeing changes over time. So here's the thing about this work. You, you don't go into it to prove results. You go into it to work with students. You're sowing seeds. Education is about sowing seeds. You don't know... Uh, you know, I, I, um, I, I've experienced it myself having taught at the university for over, you know, 30 years that you never know the impact you're having. And if you go in thinking that you're going to be able to, yes, most of the kids that, you know, I can, we can say, yes, school scores have improved over time. More and more kids, the school has gone from sixth grade all the way to 12th grade because I think largely because of giving back to Africa, all of those steps, you know, there are, there are certain things we can claim, but in terms of real solid change in a student, well, any parent knows this as well. You know, you invest, you invest and you're there all the time. You walk with, you don't do for. So sowing seeds, slow, methodical work. <laughs> Wow. It's well, not fun and it's not easy. 
And that's why, you know, a lot of development work, you, it's, it's just demanding. You, you just go into it with that kind of expectation. Wow. Yeah. So, and so what, what you continue to do even today is you're helping with the curriculum for mm-hmm. education. So mm-hmm. what does a curriculum look like for a student that is benefiting from Malembe Rise? Yeah, great question. Because what I have also said, which we can do- which we can document pretty clearly and was not expected. I, I mean, we went in to make a difference in kids and to improve leadership and to help ch- you know, to invest in children's leadership skills. Um, But what we've discovered over time is the tremendous impact on teachers. So in fact, teacher professional development has become probably our greatest contribution, I think, to the education system in Congo. I mean, the the teachers that we've been working with now for, for seven, eight years um, have changed dramatically the way they teach and the way they think about the kinds of skill sets that their students need to have to be able to contribute positively to their own environments. So what was exciting and unexpected, an experimental organization is also an organic organization. So over time, organically, a model of education began to emerge as we worked step-by-step with four, well, four to six key teachers from fifth grade on up to, to 12th grade as students matriculated up. The model is this. So that has, that drives the curriculum. So the skill set for leadership that has emerged is our five leadership skills. They include the skill of observation. So what does it take to be a leader in Bloomington, Indiana, or in Paso de, or in Indianapolis? You really need to know how to observe. You you need to develop the uh, ability to to look around you and see the kinds of assets that exist in your environment. So observation is the first skill. The second skill is the ability to take what that what you see and formulate a question. So observation leads to question, which leads to the ability to do research, to learn, to educate yourself about a particular issue that you observed, right? And that skill of research or educating yourself about a project or an issue, then you collect data about that and you analyze it. So the third leadership skill is what do you do with your data that you haven't, you know, how if you, that you've been educated, how, what do you do with that? How do you analyze it? And from there, how do you use that information that you have learned from having observed an issue that interested you? What do you do with that? Well, how do you contribute positively to your environment as a result of your learning? So from that came out of this process came community service actions. And we call them community service actions. So action communauté. We don't call them community service projects because project, projet in French 
whenever you hear projet, you immediately think three-year project in and out by it, it's a kind of sort of everybody knows what project means in Congo. So we call them <laughs> community service actions. And then the fifth leadership skill. Okay, so observation, research, analysis, community service, reflection is the fifth and maybe the most important skill for a leader. You need to learn how to assess what, what you, uh, how you have used your education Assess it, what worked, what didn't work, what could we have done better? Asking yourself questions like that, reflection, so that you can come back the next year and do it again about an issue that you have that's different. That model emerged into what we call an eight-step process that guides the curriculum. So the first step in the curriculum development is, is just choosing a school. So I'm working now on the manual itself about how how this actually evolves. The second step is that the students go out into their community and do an observation walk. You know, in Australia, you call them community walkabouts. They walk around and they observe and they take notes and they come back to the school. And then with the teachers, the third step is coming up with a driving question. What did you observe? What are you interested in learning about? What is the question you want to really focus on? Then Malembe Rice works with the, two, with the key teachers, the focus group of teachers. We call it a teacher learning circle to create a very simple curriculum, five lessons in a module about that particular driving question that introduces new ways of teaching and learning, that introduces games and going outside, asking questions rather than the kind of didactic way that most teaching is done in the Congo and in America, I'll have to admit as well, you know, we don't have many resources in Congo. So most of the learning is is by chanting copying things that the teachers write on the board. All we have is a blackboard and chalk, basically, um, to learn with. Um, And so we've introduced in the modules that we jointly create with teachers on a particular issue that the students are interested in. They integrate that those five lessons with different ways of teaching and learning. And I have to say, Linnea and Rebecca, who are on our program committee, are are phenomenal teachers, amazing teachers. And they have worked so incredibly well with Dr. Jerry, our country director, and the teachers at Collège des Savoirs, who is Mr. Pombo, Mr. Chansard, Mr. Emmanuel, and Mr. Kibulu. And then there are two other teachers that have come, that come and go. They're actually the principals. Mr. Patrick and Mr. Pamelo. So those six we've worked with. Anyway, so the curriculum is developed around that particular question for that year by those students. Then the teachers integrate the lessons into their classroom. Then the students decide how they want to share what they've learned. So we almost always now annually have a FET Présentation, which is a kind of a science fair where the students introduce their work, what they've learned, and invite the community. So therein is another sort of 
measurement. Um, the first FET was in 2012 and that, or 20, yeah, 2012. There were maybe 50 people there, parents. And I don't, the last one that I can remember right now, I don't remember what it was. Well, COVID has changed everything, but in 20, anyway, the numbers had gradually increased to as many as 800 people have come to watch the FET. And it's, it's always a very exciting thing. But after the FET, the next step is community service. And this for me is the most interesting and wonderful. The students now, they've studied, they've looked, they've observed. Now they're gonna use their research skills. And every year they have done door-to-door surveys. Now that's pretty remarkable. You wouldn't find that happening much in America. You know, of course, accompanied with teachers, they have done, for example, you know, the last, one of the more recent ones was um, students trying to learn about malnutrition in their community. And they went door to door and gathered, did a survey uh, asking questions of households. Again, I, it's important that the, these students are always accompanied with an adult. So we really are, are really cognizant of how, how protected these students need to be because these are young kids. Um, then they come back and work in small groups to analyze that data. And from that, they come up with their community service projects. What a unique concept to have children engaged in their own development. It, it is pretty, yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, I think of the value that students would have if they had a say in what they were going to study. and. Mm-hmm. The, they could make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, this struggle between teach to the test measurement and investing in the softer skills that help students think for themselves is a struggle that is across all cultures in all education systems. And I see it as much in America as I do in Congo. And, and in some ways, what's been interesting is that we've, it's just been so exciting to see the Congolese teachers really see the value, even though they themselves were taught in the same way, teach to the test, corporal punishment, you know, and that's the, the other thing is that it's become much the corporal punishment, which is always Shocking for for people who who go, you know, I saw it in Uganda. I saw it in Kenya. It's not something that is uncommon, but the teachers we've been working with, you know, the student centered um, classroom has become really a prominent way of thinking in their mind. So it's one thing to just come in and sort of learn. It's another thing to, to learn how to think differently. Right. You know, and that involves all of us thinking differently about cross-cultural work. It involves taking the time to, to think about what impact am I really having in my own life and, and working with students. Every teacher asks that question or should be asking it every single day. Right. Yeah. So what has been the most difficult part of starting your own 501c3 NGO um, what's, what's been the toughest part? Oh, 
one. I'm sure there's several. Okay, no, there's one. And that is the painful nature of this work. It's one thing to teach in the classroom. It's another thing to, to see that a decision you make will have actual consequences in somebody's life. Um, and that, and here's an example, you know, we had a donor once who wanted, who went to Congo with me. He wanted to, he's kind of overwhelmed with, with everything. And he kept saying, you know, we need to start a food program here. We need to get a food program going. And, you know, and I'm willing to give a certain amount of money to get that started. And I had to sit and talk. I, I said, okay, well, yeah, we can set it. We can set up a food program. Yes, there are so many malnourished children at Collège des Savoirs. It and it will break your heart. But I sat down with him and I said, okay, so if you start a food program, here's what you have to think about, so that it's sustainable. You know, so it's owned by the community. So the community has the capacity and ability, you know, do they have enough gardens in order to sustain a food program? Are you going to have to depend on the World Food Program or, you know, uh, (laughs) my savior is coming in. Right, right. So here's how it, this, here's what it costs. And I actually um, cost it out from other I gathered information from other food people who had started food programs in other communities in that area. And um, the cost was not inconsequential and it grows over time because the more you feed, the more people come and pretty soon you're overwhelmed. Who's going to manage that? So what's been hard is that Malembi Rise is small. We have a limited capacity So every time I go to Congo and I look at Ruth or I look at little Mobulu or I look at some of these kids who are clearly malnourished and I know that I cannot solve that problem, which is a problem. So the long-term perspective of education demands the willingness to admit that you cannot solve necessarily a short-term issue that living with that reality is the hardest thing ever and always will be but you will do more harm than good right unless you have the capacity as an organization to to set up a partnership with local people who are who see it as an issue that they want to solve you know and unless you have gardens sufficient local gardens sufficient to support that rather than bringing in food from from wherever you know is you have to live with that reality and it and it is a killer it, oh. it weighs on you profoundly and all i can say is you know these kids are um they're they're just great they're just it's wonderful to be around them the fact that you're teaching these children, young people to fish, basically. Mm-hmm. You're teaching teachers um, how to teach the kids how to fish. Uh, you know, you're, you're yes. allowing them to, um, to solve their own problem, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the greatest aspects of Malembe Rise is as much as we don't want to come in and be 
white saviors. But it goes back to what you just said. We want to solve the problem and we, and we almost do it with ADHD versus doing it slowly, um, like Malembe Rise, you know, mm-hmm. let's do it slowly. Let's do it with intention. Mm-hmm. Let's do it with, with love mm-hmm. and wanting only the best for the community mm-hmm. versus just coming in like a tornado and, uh, yeah. you know, ripping it all up and making it what, what we think is is the right way to do it mm-hmm. exactly yeah and and not not even coming not coming into I, I just keep wanting to use the language of uh, work a uh, walking with it um, it's it's never us coming in to teach anybody we're working with teachers right to to um, introduce new ways of thinking and learning and uh, that that's what takes a very long committed time. Have you thought of, of, of introducing the new way of learning in, here in the United States? Well, it's interesting. I've made several presentations over the years to teachers and also in classrooms with students just talking about Congo. And what teachers always, almost always say to me is, well, why wouldn't you bring this model here? Right. You know, we would love to have something like this in our classroom. And would it travel across cultures? Would it work here in the States? It probably would. It would be different and um, interesting to see how it would evolve in a different culture here in the U.S., but but I I'm convinced that in the right environment this model can travel across cultures. What do you think the common denominator is to make it work? Well, the common denominator is you know authorities that see the value of it and the the policymakers and the people who who make the education system work and that and that's challenging so. That's the other thing. It's it's um we work small, right? It's not like we're gonna and and we're we're having a hard time with that because there are some international organizations now that are really in, kind of interested in learning more about our model. This model doesn't work by going broad. You know, you can't just go and do a two week institute and teach people teachers how to think how to think differently. You can't do that. It means walking with, which involves staying in one school over a long period of time, working with the same people over a long period of time. And so so I think that one common denominator is that if you can stay, if you if you can stay in one place for a period of time, a longer period, a much longer period of time instead of casting yourself across wide right widely i think this model can work anywhere wow well so i guess this has been a fabulous conversation and and you know <laughs> we we briefly talked about covid but you know covid has impacted everyone it has you know impacted the children the people the congolese so i guess you know as we promote this i'm going to ask people to to think about giving to Malembe Rise because mm-hmm. your information really gives a different light on, on what it means to truly give back 
to an organization and what it means to give back to people. Uh, I mean, you chose all the right reasons to do it. You didn't choose to do it for recognition, fame, for um, all those things. Uh, you did it because of your love for the Congolese. And so that's beautiful to me. And one of the reasons why I, I, I joined um, the board, uh, because your passion for it is is very contagious, um, which is great. Um, so I guess, you know, you're an educator, you, you know, professor, etc. Give me three books that have impacted your life, whether it be with the work you're doing now, or when you were, you know, 19 years old, leaving the Congo, you know, what are three books that have really impacted you? Yeah, wow. Well, so many have impacted me um, and they change over time. So, um, you know, uh, um, one of the, from an academic perspective, one of my my favorite um, academic authorities is um, somebody called Alan Fowler, who is a South African and he's written extensively about community development uh, so he's written a number of books, uh, but he's been a guiding principal um, author that I have followed over my academic career. But more importantly, and as I've aged and as I continue, you know, there's no specific answer to this question of injustice, which is really the driving question of my life. And I'm always looking for ways to understand how to respond to injustice and I have to say that I have been blown away by the work of Howard Thurman, who was really the moral uh, and intellectual foundation for the civil rights movement here in the U.S. in the 1960s. And I highly recommend any one of his books. But Jesus and the Disinherited is one of the most powerful books I've ever read. But all of his books are phenomenal. And then Parker Palmer is an educator, and he's he's written a great deal about education. And one of his books, well, I used to read it the be- at the beginning of every school year called The Courage to Teach. But he's also written a lot, a number of books. And so Parker, so I'm not giving you books, I'm giving you authors. That's okay. We'll take <laughs> because the, the authors are what have you know, they are consistent across time. So Thurman, Howard Thurman, number one, Parker Palmer and Alan Fowler. Those are my three. Wow. Well, so now just so people know who are listening, the Congolese, they speak Lingali, correct? That's right. Well, well, there are over 240 ethnic languages in this country. I mean, it's huge. But there are four national languages. Lingala is one, in the, usually in the West. Okay. Kiswahili is spoken in the East. Chiluba, which is spoken in, in the West, well, in the Central West, and then Kikongo. So I do speak Lingala. I grew up in the Lingala region. Right. And then French is the, French is the official language, the language of instruction. So... Yeah, so you want me to say something in Lingala? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you read my mind. So I guess (laughs) I, you you know, if there were things that people could say that they learned from today, you you know, how do you say thank you? 
Oh, well, interesting. Thank you. Is um, So Lingala is, is one of those languages that um, is a conglomeration of many different languages that developed along the river. So it's a trade language. So in fact, in Lingala, they're actually, the word is a French word. So merci mingi. Merci is French. Mingi is Lingala. So thank you very much. Merci mingi. And then... <laughs> Yeah, that I mean, so merci Mingi. Oh, <laughs> merci Mingi. <laughs> just overflowing. Um, <laughs> I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. You're 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 changing people, you know, one seat at a time. Well, I, I'm just delighted with the Malembe rice. That that's a whole nother conversation that I don't think we have time for. But it's you all that are bringing the changes and in yourselves. And that's the other thing. The work changes, right. changes all of us in, in remarkable ways if we are invested in it. So Congolese, Dr. Jerry, the board, all of us are being changed together as we work on this common. I think we have to be open to it. We have to like I said, we are citizens of one world. That's and right. Just, just because that world is a 16-hour flight away does not mean that they're less important than if they're 16 minutes or 16 feet across the street. No. And I think that's, you know, I've, I've always thought that I was a citizen of, of one world. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I'm a citizen of, of one world as long as it's defined in what my world looks like. Mm-hmm. That's the area that I have been, my eyes have been opened up immensely um, in the last two years being a part of Malembe Rise mm-hmm. is that um, your your world is bigger than what you see. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what you choose to learn, learn about and, and get outside of, of, of your own space. And so yeah. I encourage people to one, read, you know, look at the authors that you've mentioned Two, go to melendeyrise.org, learn about it, and um, broaden your, you know, citizenship, um, you know, become a citizen of more than what you just currently are. Thank you. Yes. Merci, Mingi. (laughs) Merci, Mingi. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Take care. All right. We'll talk later. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me today. I don't know about you, but I sure am grateful for the opportunity to listen and learn from such great women. So if you enjoyed yourself as much as I did, please feel free to share Braveful podcasts with your friends and colleagues, as well as please subscribe to Braveful on your favorite podcast apps. Have the best day ever. And until next time, be Braveful.